Can learning transform your life? This is Impact Learning with Maria Zinedou, a podcast where you will hear personal stories about how we learn, work, and live in the connection economy. Together with her guests, she will teach you to design your learning journey and create the life you want. On today's episode... And I'll tell this to all 18-year-olds listening. When you go to college, you're all going to have a moment that really tests you, at least one, probably many, where it gets really hard for some reason. And it could be academic, it could be social, it could be both. You, You have no idea, no way of predicting it. But if you're not truly excited about the experience you're at, it's a lot easier to opt out and drop out and have the debt without a degree, which is punishing. And you just really want to avoid that. And so if you have any of these doubts in your mind right now, I think searching for a curated gap year experience or piecing one yourself together makes a ton of sense and is really important. If you're still excited about the online experience that your college or university is going to offer, totally go for it, right? Like no reason to delay if you're genuinely excited about it, but be honest with yourself would be my big advice as you're sort of navigating this choice right now. Hey, it's Maria, and you are listening to Impact Learning. I hope you and your families are all doing well and staying calm and healthy. My guest today is an expert on disruptive innovation, online learning, blended learning, and competency-based learning. He speaks and writes about the future of education and works with a portfolio of education organizations to improve the life of each and every student. He is the author and co-author of multiple books, white papers, and articles on innovation, including the award-winning book, Disrupting Class, How Disruptive Innovation Will Change the Way the World Learns, and the Amazon bestseller, Blended, Using Disruptive Innovation to Improve Schools. His latest book, Choosing College, How to Make Better Learning Decisions Throughout Your Life, is a must-read for students and parents today more than ever before. I'm thrilled to introduce to you today Michael Horn, a senior strategist at Guild Education, which partners with leading employers and organizations to help offer education and upskilling opportunities to America's workforce. He's also the co-founder of and a distinguished fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute, a non-profit think tank that aspires to change the world through disruptive innovation. Michael holds a Bachelor of Arts in History from Yale University and an MBA from the Harvard Business School. During our discussion, we unpack the future of higher education and dive into the challenges and opportunities for students, adult learners, as well as academic institutions and online learning service providers. Join me in this insightful conversation with a thought leader who was named by Tech and Learning magazine as one of the 100 most important people in the creation and advancement of the use of technology in education. Let's dive right in. Hello, Michael. Welcome to Impact Learning. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So since we don't know each other uh, well, what is uh, your favorite childhood memory? related to learning? Oh, wow. You know, that's a good question. I think, honestly, a lot of my memories of learning are 
really with my parents, honestly. Like um, my dad in particular, he would look at works I had done and he'd say, you know, you 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 can push a little harder on that or or speeches that I would give. I remember him honestly drilling me for uh, for hours on end and practicing. And, and the honest thing is I loved it. Like I loved getting the feedback. I loved getting the coaching. And I learned a tremendous amount from him. Uh, and I credit it with a lot of my growth in writing and speaking. So it's almost like you had a coach, you had a parent, you know, your parents, but also like a coach and mentor and advisor. So they were like playing different functions. That's exactly right. And I think that can be a funny function sometimes, right? For, for a parent or the kid to uh, relate to. But I think it happened... It, you know, it wasn't like some of these tennis coaches, right, where they're, it's the parent and it's constantly in your face. This was something that would episodically come up and he would really lean in. And from my perspective, it was like he cares and he's trying to coach me and help me do things better and really help me think about the details and not just sort of gloss over things that would be easy to do. Very nice. What were you interested in? What did you like to study growing up? Yeah, I was all over the place. You know, I, I as a as a little kid, I thought I'd be an astronaut or a scientist. Those were sort of where I gravitated toward. Uh, math was always something I really liked throughout, and then uh, reading and writing was obviously a big part of my upbringing. Uh, and then I, in high school, I was very active in the student newspaper and things of that nature. What was interesting was uh, social studies and history were my least favorite subjects. And then when I got to college, that's what I ended up majoring in history. So, you know, these things, uh, you, you never can tell which pathways you'll sort of follow when, once you get into these uh, different places is what I guess I would say. But it was important to me to learn a lot of different things. And then I guess the, the, the last part of your question that might be interesting is I was really passionate always about my extracurricular activities. So I'm, I'm a pianist and piano was a very big part of my upbringing. I play a few other instruments as well. Uh, tennis was a big part of my upbringing. Uh, and then, as I mentioned before, the student newspaper, and that became a big passion in college as well. And so I was always very involved in sort of these other activities that were outside of the academics, uh, which I, I think really stoked my passion and my sense of uh, performance, right? That you were actually on the hook for producing something that people cared about. Mm -hmm. Very nice. So how did you choose college? Pun intended. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, it was funny. So I obviously wrote this book, Choosing College, and, and they interviewed me. Uh, you know, my researcher interviewed me for it because that's sort of put yourself under the microscope, right? And what was so interesting was uh, how, how much I just fell into help me get into my best school is what we call it uh, in, the, in, in the book. But not just that, because it was interesting. Also, I went to business school, for those that don't know, and, and uh, I figured there I was trying to transition into the business world from the political world and things of that nature. But I was totally and helped me get into my best school there as well. It was uh, very much about the, uh, I, I don't want to overemphasize it was about the brand name. I think it was about intrinsic reasons. But I was really looking for a campus that from my perspective, really brought me energy and that would excite me to be there. And that was sort of give me that classic college experience where I could really explore and so forth. And I'll tell you the brief story, which was that my parents, you know, sort of helped 
uh, come up with a list of, I think, I don't know, 10 to 15 schools or something like that, that we would visit and start to get to know and so forth. And interestingly enough, they were all on the East Coast so that I wouldn't be that far away from my mom, uh, which I, I sort of didn't really understand <laughs> in, at, at the time. Uh, but then we went and visited them and, and one of them was Yale. And I was convinced that there was no way I was going to go to Yale. And it was two reasons. One, it was in New Haven, which in the Washington, D.C. area where I grew up had a very bad reputation as being dangerous because a student five or six years older than me had been killed there in New Haven uh, from the Washington, D.C. area. And then secondly, my father had gone to Yale and I just was like, I do not want to be in his footsteps. I want to be out of that and so forth. So we're literally driving up to the school to visit in the summer, dead heat of summer in June. And uh, a bird crashes into our windshield and gets stuck in the windshield wiper. And I, I started screaming at my parents, like, this is an omen. We're wasting our time. Why are we even going there? They said, just, just, just visit it. You'll learn something from it. It's fine. And so short, you know, to make it a shorter story, we went there. The tour was amazing. It was dead of summer, as I said. And yet there was still an energy and pulsation about the place that I loved. And I ended up applying early there once I sort of satisfied myself that there was enough jazz music opportunities and things of that nature for me to sort of be engaged in. And uh, I, you know, I loved, I loved the experience. And when times were hard, I really enjoyed it. But uh, I, I would say in retrospect, it was not the most strategic thing in the world. But I think that's sort of the point is when you're an 18 year old, you don't know what you don't know. And, and picking something that is intrinsically interesting and goes with your gut, I think is actually really important. And then as I understand, like you explored, you explored different things. And then eventually you realized, okay, history is a place that I, you know, that I would like to learn more. So you explored a little bit of that. So it gave you flexibility. Yeah. And that was really important for me. I think if, if I'm looking back now on a lot of the trends throughout my life, and even right now, this notion of sort of being a Renaissance person, if you will, of like doing a lot of different things has always been part of my character and something that I still enjoy today. And I think Yale being a place where you didn't have to declare a major too early, you didn't have to go into a specific school, you know, you were going to be a school of engineering or whatever, as you do at some places that that was important to me. And I took classes in lots of different departments. And I really liked the fact that even as a history major, you know, 12 out of my 36 classes were history. The, the the rest were all over the place. And that was something that was really important to me to be able to just explore and learn and not just from the professors, but from my fellow students. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Something to keep in mind, because again, as we're talking now, 21st century, uh, you know, 20 years ago, you would, you, you know, someone would become an engineer and, you know, this is what they would do for the rest of their life. Things have changed now. So what you did was a little bit more broader like like Epstein says, like a range uh, yeah. of skills, experiences, uh, like things that you can learn that will complement you as a person and help you grow, but also give you a broader perspective. Yeah, that's exactly and allow right. you yeah and allow and allow you flexibility to make a choice because again yes when we are eighteen and twenty it's not necessarily clear you know to, for everyone what we want to do. Okay, at which stage um, did you decide that you wanted to pursue an MBA? Yeah, so uh, so I, I after uh, college, I went to work for David Gergen, uh, who's a political commentator, worked for many presidents, writer, and so forth, and uh, was working as his uh, its research assistant is the title, but it's effectively a chief of staff role, and uh, was enmeshed in the politics and writing and so forth, and was growing somewhat sick of them, and everyone in uh, the role that had worked for David, it was a two year role, and then every single person before me had gone to law school. 
And so I was thinking, well, maybe I should do the same and so forth, but I wasn't really into law school. I didn't really want to be a lawyer. And I was sort of fascinated because David was spending a lot of time with the business school and my previous mentor, Charlie Ellis, uh, had been a Harvard Business School graduate and had talked up a lot of the skills that you gain in an MBA program and so forth. And so I was sort of intrigued by this idea, I guess is what I would say. And you know, honestly, I, I think the, the the reality of it, it was I knew that what I was doing, I couldn't keep doing. It was sort of, I had to go to school and it was a logical next step. And I was really convinced that I was tired of being on the reactive side of everything in terms of like writing about interesting people doing interesting things uh, or sort of reporting on it and things of that nature. And I wanted to create something. Uh, and I felt like going to business school would give me the ability to create organizations that would have impact in people's lives and you know, sort of make a contribution, if you will, through that lens. And so that that notion of business and creation was really important to me and led me to the MBA. I will tell you, I still applied to law schools and it wasn't until uh, I got into the Harvard Business School, but I did not get into Harvard Law School. And uh, I had choices of some other places where I'd gotten into both. And we were walking around the Harvard Business School campus and my dad uh, and mom actually had come up for, for April to visit for a few days. My dad looked at me and he was like, you're clearly going here. Like, this is a joke. Why, why are we all deluding ourselves playing this game? And a few days later, sure enough, I committed to go. So that's sort of how these things work in, in, in retrospect. Yeah. yeah, very nice. Uh, when did you meet uh, Clayton Christensen? Yeah, so I was in his class my second year, first semester, and, and yeah, was one of his MBA students in this class he taught called Building and Sustaining a Successful Enterprise. Okay. And then you continued, you worked with him, you co-authored a book. So how did this come about? So he literally, November, one day, very end of class, says to the class, anyone interested in writing a book with me about public education, please stop by after class. And I happened to stop by not to talk about that, but to talk about my paper that I was writing for his class. And at the very end, I said, you know, I came to business school really to get away from public policy, to get away from writing and so forth. But so let me let me back up a little bit. His ideas that he taught in that class and the theories of innovation literally changed the way I saw the entire world, like not just business, but everything. I started filtering through these lenses and just was transformational beyond belief for me. And at the very end, I said, you know, if, if you were serious, like co-author a book with you about such an important problem facing our country and our society and our world, I, I don't know what you're thinking or how it would work, but I'd like to do it with you. I, I think it could be an amazing opportunity. And he, to be fair, he thought about it for two or three months. He had a first choice who was not me. Uh, she ended up doing something else. And then he said, all right, in February, he said, you're going to be the one, but let's, you know, he didn't give me an option to say no. He said, let's sign up and let's do this. And uh, and that's when I committed. And basically the the agreement was, we'll take a year to write the book. And then he said, and I'll help you do whatever it is you want to do afterward. Well, the book took two years to write. Midway through, we started what became the Clayton Christensen Institute, a nonprofit think tank. And at the end of the two years, when the book came out, I, I had a choice, you know, do I want to do this or do I want some other opportunities to come along? And I looked at myself and I was like, you wanted to start organizations where you could lead people toward having an impact you have the opportunity to do this on a very cool platform that you believe passionately in the messages in the book. Let's go do that. And so we, you know, sort of put our heads down and, and started to do that. And what is the, the title of this book? 
Yeah, the book is called Disrupting Class, uh, How Disruptive Innovation Will Change the Way the World Learns. And it was all about how we could use this body of disruptive innovation theory to help public schools really move away from what we call a factory model of education, where we treat all students as the same based on their date of birth, the year in which they were born, and we deliver the same learning to them at the same time and so forth, and have wildly disparate results, right, in terms of how students do or whether they find themselves in that system and the like. And how would you use innovation to really create a tutor-like experience for every single child so that they could, uh, the learning could be personalized for their needs when they need it and really allow them to develop their passions and, and fulfill their potential. Mm -hmm. And then you said that you worked around the idea of what is now the Clayton Christensen Institute. So how did, tell us about your journey, how you, you know, started working there, co-founding. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so uh, so it was interesting. So the first year of writing Disrupting Class, I was working at Harvard as Clay's research associate. And toward the end of that year, he started sort of getting antsy. And he said, I don't want to just write a book that sort of people read and then it collects dust on people's shelves. I really want to create the change itself. And uh, I think we should create some sort of nonprofit that does that. What, what, what should that look like, Michael? And so uh, I said, it sounds like what you want to do is create you know, a do tank or a think tank, right, that that would continue to do research and develop the ideas, but also promote the ideas and help entrepreneurs, educators, policymakers, parents, students, whomever uh, actually implement these ideas and actually make the change itself. And so that was the idea. We created a nonprofit together with one of my other classmates. Uh, and then we started, you know, over, I, I was there for about 10 years leading the education team. And we put out a lot of research. We did a lot of testifying and creating a policy in, in, in a variety of states and federal government, traveled around the world a lot, uh, helping educators and policymakers think through how education could look differently, uh, and worked with a lot of entrepreneurs as well in creating organizations that would rethink what schooling uh, and education look like. And so the seeds of it were really in the thesis of disrupting class, but then the work took on a life of its own, realizing you know, you write a book, we think it's pretty good, but you realize how much you don't know uh, the moment people start coming to you and saying, oh, you forgot X or you don't understand Y and, you, you know, you, Z is totally impractical, but here are some other ideas. And we really use that to listen and learn and evolve and then develop a much deeper set of ideas about how we could help. For those who don't know, disruptive innovation. For someone like I've been in corporate and I've followed Christensen's work, so I'm very familiar. But for someone who is not like you and me, how yeah. would you explain disruptive innovation? And it might be good to share an example that relates to higher education or education. Perfect. So uh, just to step back for those who may say like, oh, I kind of think I know that phrase or like in the Wall Street Journal, I read something that said so-and-so is going to disrupt something or TechCrunch or whatever. I would say it's a very powerful theory that is misused constantly uh, in the world. Like it's used for anything that's going to try to replace or destroy or you know something. And that's not what Clay meant by it. What it means is disruptive innovation is really a process that transforms a sector that has lots of complicated, expensive products and services that are only accessible to people with lots of money and, and, and lots of expertise. And it transforms it by introducing simple, affordable, accessible products and services that start off as primitive, but get better and better and better over time. 
such that they can serve more demanding users over time and really transform a field. So I'll, I'll first give an example outside of education, and then we'll do education. Mm-hmm. So outside of education, when computers were first invented in the 1940s and 50s, these machines literally cost $2 million to own. They were mainframe computers. They filled entire rooms. And so, you know, 99 point whatever percent of us never had access to a computer. And then you started to see waves of disruptive innovation. The most popular conception of which is the personal or desktop computer, uh, which basically said, you know, for 2000 bucks, you can have a computer that you no longer have to go to this corporate computing center. It comes to your fingertips at your desk. And it's so simple to use that a hobbyist or child can just flip it on and start becoming productive, right? Those early machines, super primitive. You couldn't even do things like word processing or or spreadsheets or things like that that we take for granted now. But they got better and better and better. And by the late 1980s, could do a lot of these complicated applications that you previously needed these massive $2 million machines to do. And the volume just collapsed in these big uh, mainframe computer markets and, and personal computers took over. Now, interestingly enough, mobile phones, smartphones, right, are totally disrupting that today. And we're starting to see that personal computers or laptops are starting to become fewer and fewer. And the growth is really in these machines, these uh, computers that we carry around in our pockets that are affordable, accessible, and so forth. So let's switch to education. and We'll do higher education first. Uh, So the classic example of what I think of this is online universities. So, you know, it used to be that the only way to really get higher education was you had to go to a place like a Harvard that had a very expensive price tag with it, deeply centralized locations and the like, and only accessible to a very small number of people. Well, online education transforms that because now I can get education anywhere I am that has internet connectivity. Uh, It's far more affordable generally than a traditional experience. Uh, It's far more accessible and I can consume it anytime I want, right? And it's it's simple to get access to. And we're not just talking about Harvard putting its offerings online, but more experiences like a Coursera or Southern New Hampshire or Western Governors University, places like that. Now, here's the other thing that's interesting, I think. People might say listening, well, community colleges did that. What's the difference? And what I would say is that community colleges, they came in and they've decentralized the world. They've given many more people access, but they haven't actually gotten better over time such that those people who previously said, oh, you have to go to a state university or Harvard would ever think, oh, gee, a community college is a viable, more affordable substitute. And what we're seeing with online education is it's starting to do that. It's getting better and better such that the elite brands, they now all have online offerings. Uh, And increasingly, particularly in like graduate studies, um, we see people being like, actually, maybe it doesn't make sense to spend huge sums of money to go to the quote unquote best place in the world when it's actually far more affordable and convenient and comes to me and I don't have to uproot my family and all the like. And so you know, we're in the early stages of it still, but online education, because of that technology enabler, the data, the interactivity, the game-like features you can put into the educational experience, it's getting better and better and better, uh, despite what a lot of people experienced over the last many months because of COVID. Uh, And we're seeing that disruptive impact now. Mm -hmm. When you say better, are we talking about from a technology point of view or other aspects that community colleges probably have, or many of them have fallen behind? 
Yeah, great question. So I think it's from a teaching and learning perspective, right? That te and technology is just the enabler of it. And so the way I like to think about it is the first online learning was basically PDFs thrown online in the 1990s. They were flat, uninspiring. There was no interaction whatsoever. It was just a correspondence course effectively put online. You fast forward five years, it started to become simple PowerPoints that had limited interactivity, then flash media, and then started to be like game-like and simulation type environments. You know, 20 years ago, you couldn't really interact by video chat or any of those features like what we're doing right now to have this conversation. These things are so ubiquitous now that it starts to create an experience that actually rivals the best in-person seminar you can imagine. But even more than that, the technology actually eliminates a lot of the variability. So I would argue that the best online education experience, maybe it's not as good as the best in-person experience that's ever been created, but the bad experiences and the good experiences are very tightly controlled. You can really make sure that you have a really good experience that's better than 80% of the in-person stuff. Uh, and it's getting better and better year over year. Mm -hmm. Very good. So let's look at, you mentioned Coursera. There are other like education, learning platforms, LinkedIn, learning platforms, or education the, the technology, you know, uh, services and different organizations that they're what I call outsiders, like outside of the higher ed system. How do you see them versus the traditional higher ed in terms of who is winning and who is losing, especially with the pandemic, you know, because the situation has probably changed a little bit over the last three months. How do you see them evolve? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's it's hard to say definitively because I think the reality of the future of higher education is it's going to be a lot of different players from both the traditional universities as well as some of these upstart entities coming in that make up our future sort of uh, picture or portrait of what colleges and universities and higher education looks like in the future. So I don't think there's going to be one winner, uh, if you will. That said, what I what I would note is I think the Coursera's and LinkedIn's of the world are obviously booming amidst these times, and they're growing extremely rapidly, and they're providing some real tangible value, particularly to adult learners who are trying to upskill so that they can get a back into the job market or get a better job or working directly with employers themselves to help upskill and reskill their training force and so forth. And we're starting to see all sorts of novel arrangements of credentialing, you know, giving the equivalent of a degree in these sorts of spaces. And I think all of those places that have been really intentional about the online learning design are very well positioned right now amidst these times to continue to grow out of it. Uh, now, in terms of traditional colleges and universities, the places that have done well are those places that have carved off separate units where they've deeply invested in the online learning. So just to give an example, Southern New Hampshire University about, oh gosh, uh, 10, 15 years ago, they had launched an online entity and then they, and they realized though online learning is very different from our traditional brick and mortar campus that we run we ought to carve it off as effectively a separate unit or separate school, if you will. It's going to have its own faculty, its own resources, its own uh, technology team, et cetera, et cetera. And a school like that, they offer a very affordable online degree. The technology has gotten light years better over the last 15 years. The experience is a lot better. And so a school like that that's offering a really high quality, affordable experience, they're doing great. A lot of colleges and universities that have just taken their face-to-face -face and rushed it online amidst the pandemic, 
I, they're going to struggle because they haven't put the thoughtful investment in it. They haven't recognized that online learning shouldn't look exactly like a brick and mortar experience. The, the idea is not to replicate the brick and mortar campus. You know, the things that I found exciting about Yale, in, incidentally, are not the courses per se, but all those offline student to student interactions, the dining hall, the parties and things of that nature. Online learning isn't going to substitute for that value proposition, but I would argue it's way better at certain learning features and other value propositions. And so those schools that have carved it out as a separate unit and said, go do that really well, I think stand to benefit right now. Uh, and, and we're seeing it in their numbers, I think, that they're going to grow pretty rapidly. Mm -hmm. So for those who have not kept up and have not, let's say, prepared so well or also proactively prepared for it, um, yeah. I know you think from a strategy, design and execution point of view, what would you recommend to them to do as the next two or three things as they build, let's say, their strategy so we don't see them fall off what I call the learning and education ecosystem? Like, do they stand a chance and where should they start from? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think there's 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 a couple things. One, some of them don't stand a chance. I think they're already behind the eight ball enough that they're in, it's it's tough. And I would almost tell those folks to try to figure out partnerships with other entities or try to carve out like the next wave of things that they might see to get creative so that they're not just trying to play catch up, but they're actually doing something fundamentally that's different, if you will. The and and so look to maybe the horizon three and try to ride it out right now. The uh, the second piece of advice I would say is don't think that you can or should do it all internally. It's just not possible. The level of technical uh, enablement and lessons that other people have learned is really difficult. So I would find a partner, whether that's someone that's going to do the entire online program or more likely these days, an a la carte approach by finding a variety of entities that can help you. Uh, I think is really important. And the third thing I would say is try to carve it off so that your existing and traditional faculty and processes don't make it look like what your current experience looks like. Like it needs to be different and exciting in its own right. And that's going to break some long sacred things that the institution has held. And that's sort of the point, right? And so you actually want to give freedom to this design team to really build a new experience that's going to unlock something that's really exciting and helpful for students, not wed uh, to your old ways of doing things that that might be inappropriate for this new medium. And I'll, I'll give you one story from, I, I do a podcast, Class Disrupted, as, as you know, um, mm -hmm. and we had a guest, Larry Berger, on, and he said, you know, one of the, like, the really unfortunate things about the pandemic was teachers just sort of tried to rush to online and replicate their physical experiences exactly online. And the real shame of that is it sent a message to kids that, you know, cover your eyes, nothing has changed, don't worry about it, like keep your head down and like we can ignore what what, what happened around us. And that's sort of like a really unfortunate missed teaching and learning opportunity about adapting amidst uh, change. And, and I think schools ought to recognize this should look different and, and it's a chance to try things differently. What about uh, mergers and acquisitions kind of deals, especially with smaller places? You know, we know the budgets are going away, the costs are increasing. They also get pressure from the consumers, the students to reduce that. Would that be a strategy some of the places, you know, could consider? A thousand percent. And I think, you know, for students listening right now, you should be looking to schools and, and asking the question, 
are they being honest with you about their chances of surviving? And are they being forthright about being active and seeking a merger or an acquisition, if that makes the most sense? And just for people that don't know, in the college world, historically, if you merged uh, with another institution or you got acquired by another college, that was seen as a negative, right? And uh, I think we have to flip it to what you said, which is, no, this is a proactive, strategic thing we are going to do to better serve our students and advance our mission. Like if we believe that this is important and we can see the writing on the wall that this is not sustainable at this, at this high cost and, and this current uh, level of expenditures and so forth, we owe it to the mission and our students to get out ahead of that and think about a merger sooner rather than later. I think that's a really smart move that more schools ought to proactively explore well before it's too late, rather than these fire sale mergers that we've seen where effectively it really is a closing, if you will. Let's shift gears now and talk a little bit about learning models. So you've done a lot of work on online uh, you know, learning, but also specifically blended learning. And you've written books and also articles and papers. So based on what we have experienced over the last decade, but also you know the last three months, who, who is winning and losing or maybe where are the challenges still for online learning and where are the opportunities that we can like help to make it better? How do you see that? Yeah, great question. So my own conception before COVID, I should say, was that <laughs> most of the activity, particularly in college and K through 12 schools and the like, would be in blended experiences where we blend online learning with an in-person experience of a variety of shapes and sizes. Uh, and it wouldn't be like, you know, you have to go to the lecture hall once a week. It might be more flexible in some cases than that. But my own sense was that students like community. They like in-person touch points. They like the opportunity to work in person in projects with other folks. And there's an accountability that comes with that as well. And there's also an opportunity to mix with your faculty and fellow students and even other people who might be in the space in these sort of impromptu conversations that you can't predict, right? That lead to employment pathways or internships or the opportunity to explore something you never thought would have been interesting before and stuff like that. And those serendipitous experiences are actually something that are really important to preserve uh, and are, are, are pretty hard to do in an online environment in particular. And so my sense was that a lot of the learning of content and things of that nature would shift to online uh, but still create these opportunities for these in-person uh, experiences where you'd be doing projects together or working on these community-based and service learning opportunities and things of that nature. Now, what I will say, I think amidst all this is that we're seeing that online is probably going to be, a full online experience is probably going to be a bigger part of people's futures than we had thought before. And I think people are going to have to be super thoughtful about what do those blended learning experiences look like. And, and my own conception is, just like um, if, if people want to imagine retail, for example, so department stores like uh, J. Crew and J.C. Penney right now, they're all declaring bankruptcy, right? They just they they're not lasting right now. They're not made for this world. They were already teetering before it, and this sort of has pushed them over the edge. But you look at the places like Bonobos or Warby Parker or Amazon. And it turns out that they're not exclusively online either. Like they are, they are building brick and mortar retail outlets, but those outlets aren't to have huge footprints with like thousands and thousands of merchandise items. 
they're there just to provide an experience. I can try on the pants at Bonobos. I can look at what the glasses look like at me at Warby Parker. I can get someone to give me a little hand-holding as I pick the right frames for me, right? And that's kind of what I think higher ed will look like. It's not that we're going to preserve these massive, massive, beautiful, sprawling campuses that cost a lot of money, but that instead you imagine more co-working experiences or slimmed down student halls where I'm learning online, but I still have these opportunities for unique experiences that happen when maybe employers are working there and students are studying there and we get to intermix in cool ways, or maybe it's just a variety of students that we get to interact and so forth. But I do think we're going to have sort of those hybrid or blended experiences still uh, as, as, as a part of the future of colleges and universities. But it will start from that point, like what experience still I cannot create, let's say, online, and then how do I create it in a physical, you know, in-person way? More of that, rather than I have a big auditorium, how do I fill it up? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And it's important clarification because it starts with online and it says, okay, how do we make the online experience better by providing these other experiences we can't do online? And the brick and mortar, if you will, snaps on top of that, as opposed to the reverse, which is... I take my fixed install base of, of auditoriums and sprawling quads and so forth and say, okay, how do I make online work with this? Which is very kludgy and just not natural. And it's why a lot of the colleges that have tried to go through more active learning environments, like they're trying to get rid of lectures because we all know lectures are a terrible way to learn, it turns out. Uh, yes. <laughs> and, but but as they're trying to repurpose these lecture halls that are, you know, they're tiered and like they have all the seats facing the center and of, of, of the stage and so forth, like it's actually really hard to create co-working experience inside of an auditorium that was built in 1800 for that purpose, right? And so it's much easier to start with the online and, and snap the brick and mortar around that flexibly and fluidly than the other way around. So how do students choose college and what other options do they have if they are hesitating for whatever reasons, financial or other reasons? Yeah. So th this is what I would say. If you're a student who's really excited about the classic college experience, you want the brick and mortar, you want to reinvent yourself with new friends and so forth. Great. That's exciting. You should be very honest with yourself. Is college actually going to happen in that sort of a format that matches up with your ideal before you spend a lot of money on it? And if it isn't, there are other experiences, gap year type experiences that can create some of that coming of age opportunity to learn about yourself that's going to cost a lot less money right now that you might want to look into. Some of that is actually going to still have a travel component to it because, frankly, if you get outside of the United States, it's safer in a lot of other countries right now than it is here, actually. So don't totally write that off. But secondly, in your own community, there might be some virtual gap year experiences that are worth looking at that are going to have a lot of components of getting to have mentors uh, with people who work in a variety of companies and industries. They're going to teach you a lot. They're going to allow you to have an internship or even a job that actually allows you to earn money during this pandemic and creates uh, some social cohorts with you so that you can get to know other students and connect and network with them and have some fun and so forth. Okay. So I would, I would be very honest with yourself about where you are and are you excited or not? Because what you don't want to have happen is go to school because you just feel like it's the next logical step and it's what everyone's expecting you to do. Our research in the book, Choosing College, and, and 
I think it's a pretty quick read to get the essence of it, but it was clear that when students went just to get away from something or to do what was expected of them, 74% of the time in the latter, they dropped out or transferred. It was just a terrible reason to go because, and I'll tell this to all 18 year olds listening, when you go to college, you're all going to have a moment that really tests you, at least one, probably many, where it gets really hard for some reason. And it could be academic, it could be social, it could be both. You, you have no idea, no way of predicting it. But if you're not truly excited about the experience you're at, it's a lot easier to opt out and drop out and have the debt without a degree, which is punishing. And you just really want to avoid that. And so if you have any of these doubts in your mind right now, I think searching for a curated gap year experience or piecing one yourself together makes a ton of sense and is really important. If you're still excited about the online experience that your college or university is going to offer, totally go for it, right? Like no reason to delay if you're genuinely excited about it, but be honest with yourself would be my big advice as you're sort of navigating this choice right now. Mm-hmm. There is one aspect in the book that you talk about, uh, like how to design, like to learn. But again, these are like young students, like they don't have a massive experience. And sometimes their parents can or cannot support them. How, like, what do they need to keep in mind when you tell them you need to learn to design this and explore it, design, experiment, repeat? Yep. Like, do you have a word of wisdom or something to help them? I would say, so one, create structure around yourself because you need help and you need support from other adults and it might not be your parents, but structure could mean like a, a 90-day internship. It might be a 90-day boot camp course, right? It might be that you're going to have an apprenticeship for uh, half a year or something like that, but put some structure around yourself where you get mentorship uh, from other adults that are out there. The second thing I would say is you referenced range earlier. It's a terrific book that I highly recommend. Um, it's uh, but but get a range of fields, right? Because you actually don't know what excites you or, or, or not. And make sure. So say you take an internship for forty five days in a science lab, and maybe it's virtual, maybe it's in person. Who knows these days? Make sure before you jump into your next internship or your next job or your course or whatever is next that you give yourself a week just to reflect about what did you like about, what did you like doing in there? And, and, and this isn't at the level of like, I like science or I don't like science. It's like, I like working with other people or I liked working by myself. I hated when I was isolated. I liked you know, the, watching my boss project manage that experiment that seems like something I would like to do, right? Those sorts of things, or you know, I like being an individual contributor on a team, right? Um, I like this subject matter, I don't like this. Those sorts, like that level of granularity. And then you might say, okay, whew, a lab is definitely not for me, but I really liked these three activities within it. Okay, now let's go look at some careers or talk to your mentor and say, like, given that I didn't like all this, but I like these three things, what is some other stuff that might line up with that, right? And so use that to come up with some other ideas, some other organizations in your community, some other online groups and other communities, um, and then apply to that so that you can get a job or an internship or an apprenticeship there. And that, that sort of process of, you know, I think I might like to do this because it matches my strengths and interests and so forth. And then I'm going to reflect, realize what I did and didn't like, and then I'm going to try something else uh, is super important. I'll give one tangible example. I mentored this kid uh, who was in college, actually. Um, he was 18 at the time. 
And he basically said like, I don't know if I want to be a PhD student one day and work in a lab research lab. I might want to work in startups or I might want to work in big companies in health in, in healthcare. Like those are three totally different experiences, right? And I said, okay, so the key for your first summer is you're going to do the you're going to uh, get a position as a research assistant in a lab on, on on the college campus, and then at the end of that, we're going to reflect on it and see what you come up with. So he reflected, and he was and he he hated it by the end, and he was like, I definitely do not want to do that. And then I said, well, what did you what were you doing with your other hours over the summer? And he was like, well, I was reading business books constantly like about how to start up organizations and companies. And I was like, okay, let's try that next summer. And so the next summer he worked at a startup and he was like, I don't need to work at the big company. I love that. <laughs> like, this is what I wanted to do. But he was able to prototype it and have a bit of a plan to test a few different visions or versions of himself to figure out where he wanted to land. And, and that's what you're really trying to do is create these opportunities to test that. And, and it's hard and I want to acknowledge that which is why there's programs like Kaplan offers boost year. For example, there are programs that will actually help you do that and give you rubrics to ask these questions of yourself that are relatively affordable and they give scholarship money in some cases, and maybe you can work a job alongside it. So it's actually more, you know, you're making money during the experience. Yes. Beautiful. And I think all these are great insights also for also recent grads, because when you and I graduated, we had a lot of opportunities to choose. And, yeah. you know, and today is a very different game. So there is uncertainty, ambiguity. I mean, there's unemployment. So I, I really feel feel for these kids who were, you know, who went through the four, five, six years and now what? So yeah. in addition to everything you covered, Michael, is there anything else that the recent grads need to keep in mind or like an opportunity they can explore? I would say two things. One, let me just use myself as an example. One of the reasons I think I ended up as a history major is I didn't know engineering existed until I, a junior or senior year of college. Like I had never met an engineer before because I grew up in Washington, DC. And as is a parent, I think at the moment, we, we didn't have engineers there. Uh, and so uh, we had other kinds of creatures, but not engineers. Um, so I, like, I didn't know that pathway existed because that wasn't in my social circle or network. And so I'd encourage people to try to talk to people outside of their network and just learn about other pathways that exist and learn what someone like that does on a day-to-day -day basis. Like, I really wish I had taken an engineer out to lunch and just asked for an hour and a half, like, tell me about your life. Like, I, I, I didn't know a thing about it um, really until I married my wife and her father is an engineer. Like, I just didn't know anything about it. So the second thing I would say is don't feel like you have to do, particularly for recent grads, don't feel like you have to do what everyone else is doing. Like at my college class, everyone consulted or went iBanking and so forth. I got this bizarre job working as a research assistant for David Gergen. What? Like, what is that? That's not a career path. But if it feels like a really good opportunity where you can learn at the stage and invest in yourself and get a mentor, I would do it. Like build your network and keep learning right now because you're going to have to be a lifelong learner throughout. No one respects you till you're 30 anyway. So like you might as well invest in yourself right now to learn more. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay. And now this brings me to the next group, which are what I call adult learners. Yes. Uh, it could be, you know, like five, 10, 20 years in their um, uh, journey. And again, today, some of them might not, might be out of work, but also 
they see uncertainty and ambiguity. They don't know where the path would go, like all of us. We don't know how, you know, the recession, how it will be, every, what will happen in six months and in six years. So, and I know also in your current role, you are really focusing on education and upskilling. So let's talk about this group, their challenges and opportunities. Yeah, so for adult learners, you know, I think there's, there's, there's a few different cases you're in right now, right? So if you have a stable job, A, that's great. <laughs> B, see if you're if, if it's a large employer there's an op there's often the case that they have education benefits that they will invest in you for online programs i would look into them and constantly be asking the question how can i upskill or reskill or learn more but i would also be looking for these sort of low-hanging fruit opportunities to invest in yourself it might be a book it might be a short course from LinkedIn Learning. What are the little things that you can do to test yourself or the projects that you can undertake to keep testing yourself and building your skills? I mean, for me, it's like, you know, creating podcasts has, has been sort of like the big, you know, learning opportunity, right? To push myself in a place that I'm not quite as comfortable and I have to develop a whole new set of skills, right? Um, the second, I think, case is where you can very clearly see like, I'm in a job but this job isn't going to exist in five years from now because of automation and so forth. The real magic in the economy, though, is going to be pairing human capital with technological talent. So what are the set of skills, either in your current field or outside of your field, that allow you to sort of get a little level of, of technical literacy, but to pair yourself strategically alongside of technology to do something that you couldn't have done before? And that's going to require some introspection and the like. But I think it's really important to be constantly saying, like, if this is where the world is going, get three years ahead of it if you can. Because right now, what we've really seen is that a lot of jobs that we thought were going to be around for five to 10 years, there were just a whole bunch of layoffs. And my belief is, like, they won't come back because this is just going to accelerate the technological automation that's out there. Third piece of advice is if you got laid off, Try to find an affordable online program to invest in yourself because there are a lot of expensive online programs out there. There are a lot of expensive brick and mortar programs out there, but there's a lot of affordable programs out there these days that give good credentials. Try to find programs that are affordable, that give quick wins to a credential so that if you have to, if, if you get lucky enough and find a job midway through, you leave with something that actually gives you a credential and a job and that you can go back to to continue to skill up uh, along your way. Very nice. Thank you so much. These are very helpful because, again, people are in different situations right now and they need, again, they don't have mentors, they don't have a lot of guidance. So they are yeah. looking for, you know, what I call mentoring guide, uh, guidance and learning from others. So you have uh, twin daughters. I They're do. like five and a half years old. You're good. So yes, I've, I've listened to another podcast and I heard um, I heard you say the story. I am an identical twin. Ah, okay. Yeah. So I have a similar story, but I think, and this is what reminded me. What was the good thing that the pandemic uh, brought, you know, for your daughters when it comes to learning? Yeah, it's been incredible. Um, you know, I, I would say that they're at an age where they're, you know, th they have relationships with their teachers and friends, of course, but they just want to be around mom and dad at the end of the day. And they're thrilled to be with us. And we've been able to take this as a time to really create more open-ended blocks of time and projects where they could explore what they wanted to and really go deep on some stuff. And it turns out, you know, we so we built a rhythm for the day where they would have a solid block of time in the beginning 
where we would do some sort of challenge together. They had some choice in what that would be. And then it was some quiet reading time. This was before Zoom sort of ramped itself up, I should say, uh, and, and blew out some of those ideas. But what was really fascinating was like both of my daughters, but one in particular, the books during that quiet reading time, they like they had a solid foundation from their school, huge credit to the school. And their level of literacy just if freaking exploded during this time. And, you know, they're five and a half, they're reading like 120 page chapter books, both of them now. And uh, they've read all the books in our house, like at least three or four times, and we can't keep up with them. And it's, it's been amazing to see you just you follow their curiosity and give them a little room. And they'll do some very cool things. And like now they're baking, creating their own recipes. My wife has a culinary background. She has her own business in, in, in that. They're creating their own recipes and, and things that we're eating. And are they amazing? No, but they're learning. Like it's incredible learning experience. And we're letting them mix things. And what happens if you add a little fat here instead of sugar? Like these are five-year-olds asking these sorts of questions and having this kind of space. And it's been very cool to to. to to watch and, and, and have that increased time with them. Mm -hmm. And it's also beautiful to see early on developing what I call lifelong learning skills, because we talk about learning that and learning that when you are 20 and 30. Well, it's difficult. It is more it's challenging difficult. to do that. Yes, when compared to when you are five, because that's, yeah. that's what you are doing at five. You're exploring and learning. But I like that you said there is structure, order, guidance, and enough flexibility so they can explore. That's exactly right. And we're trying to get out of their way, but but give them the structure that makes them feel comfortable so they know what they can control. Very nice. Okay. My favorite question, Michael, what is one thing you would like to leave your um, mark on within your lifetime? Um, gosh, uh, I mean, my family is the number one thing. I want my kids to, you know, know how much I love them. And um and that they can truly do anything that they want to do in the world. And that um, I'm, I'm not only not going to stop them, I'm just going to encourage them to follow their passions. And then I hope that becomes a model for learning throughout the world is that regardless of your background, your gender, your race, that you can achieve anything and that we're building structures that allow people to build passions and fulfill their potential, whatever that might be. And, and that's, that, that's what I'd love to leave on the world. Um, I'll tell you, uh, I haven't said this other places, but um, my wife and I have started to write a series of children's books and, and some of them are going to model some really amazing female athletes in the CrossFit community, uh, which we're big, uh, we're, we're, we're big fitness enthusiasts. And just to try to give more examples that there are people who can do incredible things regardless of their background. And I hope I create the room for that in the learning, the support structures for that in the learning. And, and the belief in people that they can do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. This is beautiful. This is so nice. And you're writing that together with your wife. And uh, yeah. of course, you know, you are living the whole experience and bringing all the aspects from your life, but then making it available to others, Michael, because you talked about this, you know, strong mentorship you had growing up. I grew up in a family that they could not support me in this kind of way, but my mom was a role model, like in terms of leadership, showing up, keeping your promise, making commitments, which for me are like, leadership training when you are like five and six years old, which is beautiful. But there are many, many, many kids that they don't have that. And everything starts early. You know, when you learn to do that early, then it's easier to make decisions. It's easier to 
to keep moving forward, you know, when life gets tough, because life will get tough. Yep. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Michael. That was a fascinating discussion. I love your work. I'm really grateful for all the work you do and the opportunity to speak to you. Well, I'm grateful for you and, and, and thanks for your wise words and compassionate uh, uh, purpose in, in, in shedding these lights for students. Thank you. If you enjoy listening to Impact Learning, please leave us a review on iTunes to help people like you find this podcast. You can also subscribe and never miss an episode. And if you have friends and loved ones who would be interested in this episode, please share it with them. Thank you. And remember, we can talk about learning, we can design it, or we can do both. This is Impact Learning. I'm your host, Maria Zenidou. Till next time.